No one will be admitted after the guests check in. Welcome to Motel Hell. It's just one guy and a Jew. See what I did there? I rhymed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But where was the rhyme? Chip Chip Cheru, one guy and a Jew. Oh. See, this is why I'm a high-paid rapper and you're not. Yeah, I'm Polish. Yep. <laughs> Are you Polish? No, absolutely not. I think we're getting away from the point. So do we want to to announce the big news, the reason for our delayed episodes? I had a baby. I'm Ben the Beardo, by the way. Yeah, and I'm Dick the Fetty. I had a baby, and uh, with babies comes a certain amount of um, lack of time. But uh, we have adjusted, and now we're ready to bring you gooby gooby goodness that is Motel Hell. Yeah, so we're back. We're 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 racked, and we're smelling like smack. Yep. But no, uh, yeah, we we Ben had a baby, so congratulations. Baby's got all its fingers, all its toes, and big old dangus, just like its dad. Yeah, it, it beat Demon Souls. Uh, fourth day, it was alive. On the guitar. Touch. On the Guitar Hero controller. Actually, no, it used uh, one of those driving controllers. <laughs> oh. So, dang. like a steering wheel and pedals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Classic. Yeah, it was crazy. Was it a no, you said it was a no hit run? No hit run. Wow. Yeah. Which one? First one, second one, third one? Demon Souls. Oh. I said that. Yeah, you did. You don't pay attention to the things I say. As soon as you say baby, my brain just turns off. It's like goo goo gaga. Does it? Because you have an erection. Well, that's the other brain. He's going (laughs) full steam. You say baby, I say boner. No, I don't think so. Um, (laughs) That's incorrect. I'm sure we'll we'll edit that out in post. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, anyways, we are here tonight to bring you uh, an episode of Pure Delight. I'm talking about the one who directs by night. It is it is uh, David Cronenberg is our subject. And so we're going to try to repeat the success and failures of our John Carpenter episode and uh, talk about another director that we know, we love, we worship, and, um, you know, try to bring you... The same perspective you've heard probably 20 times before with a lot of this same information you could pick up on the back of a cereal box or a Wikipedia article. Yes. And uh, we're going to do it with the, the same flavor and charisma that we provide all of our information. That's true. So, you know, racism, accents, 
saltiness. Salt. That's the flavor. Yeah. It's just pure salt. Yeah. It's it's you, you could you could pay an army. So yeah, in in in, in recognition <coughs> of our subject for tonight, our movie was the uh, third film by David Cronenberg, Shivers, also known as They Came From Within, and has a bunch of other titles. So let's get down. Let's get down to it. First thing that comes to mind: sexy. Yeah, that's Canada for you. So, so yeah, it w- I'm I'm interested to hear your opinion. It was your first time viewing. Correct? I really liked it. It uh, you know, if anyone doesn't know, the movie is essentially about these wormy slug guys who get in your body and make you all with the horny and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, so they're they're horny parasites and they basically it's like a zombie flick and uh, has those sort of apocalypse, near apocalypse kind of vibes, especially towards the end and whatever, but it's way more fun because it's about sex parasites. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a huge influence for the comic book Crossed. Mm-hmm. Because there were a lot of similarities as far as sex crazed and animalistic. Okay. But um, I really liked it. I it's uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Cronenberg, but I did love the movie. Yeah. I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm a pretty big sucker whenever there's boobs within the first ten minutes of anything because I like boobs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it it's effective because it takes place in an isolated setting, which is this big apartment complex that's outside of Montreal. That's on an island. On an island, and it's all, like, self-sufficient and everything, and so basically they're able to save some money by shooting it there and, you know, keeping all the action there. there so the, the reason I watched it the first time, I mean, I, I already was a fan of Cronenberg, but there's a sample, well, there's a piece of dialogue towards the end where this girl talks about this, you know, I had a beautiful dream last night, and I was making love to an old man, and he told me that even old flesh is erotic flesh, and that even dying is an act of eroticism, and so on and so forth. It's all sexy, and it's delivered by a sexy nurse, and then she gets punched in the mouth, and it's quite humorous. And uh, Hashtag spoilers, Dick Fetty. Yeah, well, okay, so hashtag spoilers on the spoilers. We're going to be spoiling your dinner. And your dessert, because but we're not going... not your boner. Yeah, yeah, not your boner, because we're talking about the Cronenberger boner. Cronenberger. Cronen, Cronenboner. Cronen, Cronenboner. There you go. There yeah, Yeah, I said that the first time. Did you? Edit, edit, edit. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... Oh, jeez. So, anyways, this, this sample, I was able to discern enough of it in the beginning of a high-functioning flesh song to then look it up and find out it was from this movie, and I was like, I need to watch this. And then I realized there's a bunch of samples from this movie also in uh, the Disease with a Purpose album by Gail Semina and uh, the Cronenberg album by Gail Semina, which samples all sorts of Cronenberg films. So, huh? yeah. Huh. Didn't see that coming. Yeah, I know. It was a little, it was a little uh, out of left field. But anyway, yeah, I like it a lot. I think it's pretty good. You haven't seen Rabbit, right? And you haven't seen The Brood? No. Oh. Nice. Keep that in. So it shares similarities with Rabbit, and, is, you know, it's sort of a precursor to the body horror that he would uh, exponentially expound upon going forward. And not even... I mean, it's just it's the origins of this, this whole thing for him. Now, we are going to get into, and I haven't seen, neither of us have seen his first two movies, which are more like short art film type of things, but I think they got uh, feature film releases, 
But we might as well... Do you want to dip into the details of Shivers now, or do you want to get to it when we go back to it? We might as well get to it when we get there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would say it was funny. The first time I watched it, I watched it intently, seriously, by myself. And aside from the part where he punches the nurse right in the mouth, I took it, I guess, more seriously, for lack of a better uh, explanation. And I really liked it. I think I, I think it's still... I'm, I'm torn somewhere between, like, an 8 and a 7.5. It's... For a low-budget horror film, it's it's not scary at any point, really. But it's effective as far as being gross in parts and unnerving in that way. But also, you know, I feel like my threshold's all fucked up. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, when was the last time either of us were truly the scared witch. by a movie? I wasn't scared by The Witch. Yeah, I know, but I was. Yeah, Hereditary had a little bit of, like, on your edge of your seat, but it wasn't really scary. Yeah, but it was, uh, it's it's been a very long time since I've, like, considered sleeping with the light on because I saw a horror movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so okay, so not a fair barometer, but I, I guess it's it's a totally enjoyable flick. It's well made. Uh, you know, it it shows the limits of its budget, but it does everything it can with it. It's got a great like ending sequence with a swimming pool that's pretty excellent, and you know, I think it's. Did you see they reuse the shot at the end there too? Which there's a shot of a, a topless blonde girl like falling in the pool, and they reused it. Oh, did they? After he's already in the pool, yeah. Nice. Like he jumps, in, he falls in the pool. Then they cut to like people coming in the pool. You see her dive in with like two other people, and then he's getting all like and they roped up it. by a sexy nurse. And then and then yeah, the shot comes back, and I was like, nice. I mean, if you're gonna reuse the shot, reuse one with tits. Yeah, and you know, so. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I think I'd, I'd probably say, like, a 7.5 is a reasonable... Yeah, I'd give it a high scale, but, I mean, any any horror movie, really, for me, is if it's from the 80s or 70s or even 60s, like, classic yeah. horror really gets me. Um, it's, it's a lot harder for me to be upset with older horror, mainly because they all use practical effects anyway. But I thought this was very well written, and, I mean, I... I I'm personally over the whole zombie genre, and yeah, this kind sure. of falls into that, but it's different, so it's yeah, it's it makes effective. it interesting. It makes yeah. it fresher, let's say. Yeah, well, the whole the, the, there's a whole brief explanation where they talk about the guy who developed the parasite and his whole sort of idea of why he does it <laughs> makes it like way ratter. And um, you know, for me, I had context going into it because of knowing the samples on the Gelsamina albums and things like that. So, like, I was already coming at it from this sort of... I was kind of waiting for that shit, so... Yeah, I didn't even ask what it was about. Yeah. You were like, we're gonna watch Shivers. I know you've never seen it. I was like, alright, cool. Yeah. So, I was pleasantly surprised. Although, that doctor's hair throughout the whole movie just bothered me. It just looked so bad. What, the main guy? Yeah. Oh, see, I liked it. His hair looked terrible. Oh, no, I liked it. And his nurse was very attractive. Yeah, she was a cutie pie. So, what's your, uh... What's your number rating? I'd I'd give it a solid seven point five, maybe even eight. The the acting was very well done. Yeah. Uh, the characters were very believable. Sure. Um, it was it was no frills. Yeah, and I honestly one of my favorite things about the movie is how many times the main character, the doctor, silently goes nope to situations throughout the movie, oh, which yeah. is very believable because like you know you watch a lot of horror movies and. People run into something and they instantly scream their fucking head off. This dude was just like, nah, and went the other way. Yeah. 
So I, I I very much liked it, although I haven't seen anything by Cronenberg that I haven't liked yet, and I very much doubt that I will. Oh, no, there's bad Cronenberg. Is there? Oh, yeah. Name We're going to get to that. Eastern Promises, History of Violence, Cosmopolis. He, he, he directed History of Violence? Yeah. Man, that movie was boring. Yeah. I guess we'll get there. Yeah. 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 So we're going to talk about the trajectory of Cronenberg, sort of, you know, we're, we're going to do the whole thing. Um, I think really we're going to spend more time talking about the movies, what they basically, which ones were successful, which ones weren't, which ones were influential, our personal impressions. This is not your deep history biography as far as, you know, some other podcasts might do. It's going to be, I think, a lot of personal impressions but try to give you a sort of timeline as to like what happened and when. And, and then I read a lot of interviews with him more recently. He turned 70 and I think it was 2014. And uh, I read some interviews from then, or it was uh, 2013, that kind of give perspective on his work and what he's doing now and everything else. Um, but yeah, so just sort of a heads up with that. Like, you know, it's really a movie discussion episode more than it is a deep biographical dive. Were you able to find some biographical stuff on him? Yeah, absolutely. Because I know just a cursory internet search when I did Carpenter, it was, it like, I had to go looking for, mm. like, deeper dive stuff for him. Yeah, so I, I mean, I have some basic information, but basically, unlike, I mean, Carpenter stayed working more or less, but Cronenberg stayed working a lot more, and he's given a lot of interviews that sort of give an overview of his his work, and I'm also going to pull... He he answered some questions after he did an interview with The Guardian that were, like, questions from fellow actors as well as people online. And I'm going to go through some of those questions and answers because they give a kind of interesting glimpses into different parts of his life. He wrote an autobiography called Cronenberg on Cronenberg, which, uh, if we were doing a deeper dive, I would have read in preparation for this, but we're just not going there, so... You guys are going to have to wait until we get our, to our Lovecraft episode if you want a deep dive on a man. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, David Paul Cronenberg was born on March 15th, 1943, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, uh, and was the son of Esther... Sumberg, a musician, and Milton Cronenberg, a writer and editor. Oh, so he also has musician in his blood, like Carpenter did. Yeah. It's interesting. He was raised in a middle-class, progressive Jewish family, and his father was born in Baltimore, Maryland, his mother born in Toronto, and all of his grandparents were from Lithuania. He began writing as a child and wrote constantly. He attended high school at Harvard Collegiate Institute and North Toronto Collegiate Institute, a keen interest in science, especially... I thought that said Hootenanny. <laughs> <laughs> Loves Hootenanny. That Lot Cronenberg... You know what they said about him in Canada? That Cronenberg, Ho that little Cronenberg, is just always hooting and nannying. Yeah, that's true. They do say that a lot about him. Um, <clears throat> especially Hootenanny, a.k.a. Botany, and lepo Lepidopterology. What uh, the fuck does that mean? Uh, lepidopterist is... They talk about it in in uh, Venture Brothers. Okay, what is it though? A person who studies or collects butterflies and moths. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, because they were talking about when they were gonna zap the monarch with that big ray on Spider Skull Island. Ah, uh, yeah. 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 And the and card, the card holder and Doe Man are there. Anyways, so he was not in the Venture Brothers, but or they, was he? Yeah, he wasn't. 
and he entered the honors science program at the University of Toronto in 1963, but he switched to honors English language and literature later in his first year. So it basically his fascination with film um, began in part with the uh, film by his classmate Winter Kept Us Warm from 1966 uh, by his classmate David Sector. Uh, he began frequenting film camera rental houses, learning the art of filmmaking, and made two 16mm films called Transfer and From the Drain. Ooh, From the Drain. Yeah, From the Drain. With the rental cameras. Uh, inspired by the New York underground film scene, he founded the Toronto Film Co-op with Ian Ewing. I'm sorry, Ian? But it's like a weird spelling. Ian Ewing. He's Canadian. Ivan Reitman. After taking a year off to travel in Europe, he returned to Canada in 1967 and graduated from the University College at the top of his class. Before we dive into all the films that Cronenberg's done, I think we should talk about sort of our, maybe just on a general level, our experiences and sort of take on like what a Cronenberg films can be about or like sort of the, 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 the kind of trademarks that he has. I, for me, it's... it's a lot of his movies, a lot of his the ones at least the ones that I like, um, outside of a history of violence, uh, is that he does a horror movie that not it seems like not a lot of people would do. Like you look at Carpenter, and I mean I guess yeah at the time when he did Halloween, slashers weren't big, but like it seems old hat. But you look at movies like Videodrome or even Scanners, like mm. who like. How many people nowadays are gonna go oh, around are making, making a TV show? You know what I mean, though. You know, yeah. what I, like as an original idea. Sure, yeah. Um, and I just his his effects work in his movies is always good. Even even in in uh, the one we watched tonight, Shivers. Uh, Shivers, yeah. yeah. The effects were were great for such a low budget movie. Like they did they did phenomenal. Yeah, I mean they made the slug the slugs look a little on the goofy side, but. They, they did them effectively enough that it wasn't, yeah. like, totally silly. But, yeah, I, I guess, like, the thing for me that I take away from Cronenberg, and part of it's because I got into a lot of his earlier, like, his sort of most famous works when I was in college and doing a ton of drugs, and especially, like, they were the kind of movies I would watch on DXM, and that would it, it sort of exaggerate the woodenness of what I felt like many of the performances were. Like, Videodrome isn't as wooden. Debbie Harry's, like, super fucking hot. She's anything but wooden in that movie, but... Uh, <laughs> Making you wooden, am I right? High five. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, a lot of his, like, the main guy in Scanners, and we'll get to it when we talk about it, but, I mean, he's, like, the least interesting person I've ever seen on a fucking movie screen, yeah. practically. And a lot of other people are like that. Like, a lot of it's just... It feels like often there are people behave in a way that is lacking in emotionality. It, you don't get your stereotypical sort of dramatic responses in a lot of different contexts. And um, there's just this, this this coldness. It's To me, it, I related to like the coldness I felt coming off of DXM. It's this sort of detached, like I'm here, I'm doing, but I'm also... It's not like registering on an emotional level for me. Right. Like there's not like a, a a deeper connection with the rest of the world. And I think sometimes that's intentional. I think sometimes not. I th think some of his movies really benefit from that, um, and other ones sort of don't. And and the ones where that's changed work the best, which I'm 
people talk about when we talk to dead ringers and um, talk about when it doesn't work is for me is is like Eastern Promises or uh, History of Violence. So, um, but you know, and then as we've mentioned already, this this body horror. This is like you know he is the sort of progenitor along with some other directors, but I mean he's kind of like the penultimate guy, and it's in many ways it's sort of harkens back to Lovecraft, not so much in the cosmic horror, a brain-exploding apocalypse nightmare when you realize the tears that lay beyond the veil, but is way more about, like, just taking influence, I guess, from this sort of squiddy, tentacly nature yeah. of those things. And I don't even know that he's really an influence for him. Like, Cronenberg doesn't strike me as a guy who's reading Lovecraft, but at least to me there are some parallels there with the sort of deformities and the ghouls especially. Yeah, it, it's, it's not as much as it is with, like, Stuart Gordon. Right, which yeah. Which is literally, like, direct referencing. But, yeah, um, yeah I mean, Videodrome is my favorite movie by Cronenberg. Yeah. Um, it's it's crazy, it's nuts, it's trippy. It's got James Woods. Yeah. And um, I'm... Ooh, piece of candy. Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm Ooh, like... piece of candy. So, one of the things I think is so funny about James Woods, and this is so totally, like, a, a side tangent, is if anyone plays the Kingdom Hearts games... He is one, I think he's like the only one from the actual movies, not like who Disney has on staff to do like the cartoon voices of the characters from yeah, the movies. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's Hades. the only, yeah, he's Hades, and yeah. he is Hades in Kingdom Hearts 1, 2, 3, and every other one they've had him voice, I think. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Which I think is hilarious. I also think speaks to like what I believe it was some kind of massive crippling cocaine habit that he might Probably. have had through the 70s and 80s, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, you know, that movie. Um, I remember last time we watched it, I was, I was whispering and yelling, uh, "Death of Videodrome, long live the new flesh!" And people I work with, mm. and people I work with aren't like us; they're um, not like us. So yeah. they didn't think it was as funny as I thought it was. Yeah. But yeah, like that, that body horror and that almost. Um, he he can go like very trippy. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but very um, surreal. Not all of his movies do it do it to such an extreme extreme as Videodrome. Yeah. But it does have this, like, all of his movies have this, like, slight, like, underlying surrealness to it for me. Sure. Yeah, I think, I think that that develops not so much in Scanners. It really starts with Videodrome, probably, and then it goes from there, and then it sort of peters out post-existence, and then he uh, goes into other areas. But, yeah, I think, he, like, they're basically... I'd, I'd argue that Videodrome to Existence, or maybe if Spider comes after that. I haven't seen Spider, but I hear that one's pretty trippy, too. I almost watched Existence today. I'm not... Strangely a, enough. Yeah, that's that's funny. So, um, you know, but yeah, there there I would agree. There is a dreamlike quality. He just, like... He's able to pull interesting performances out of some actors, and then other actors, it's like a bad line reading for an entire film intentionally. And, again, sometimes I think it works, and then other movies it's physically painful for me to watch them. And he, I wouldn't say he's fallen as low as somebody like Carpenter has, but he definitely had a stride, like hit his peak and then just started exploring territory that I guess partially for me is a lot less interesting, but also uh, just sort of didn't continue to get some of the same stunning results. And it's hard, you know, I can understand not wanting to be pigeonholed to a genre or style, but when you make such visceral art like you do with the fly or you do with videodrome or you do with dead ringers it's hard to 
not compare those movies which have such an immediate visceral impact to like his later work which is supposed to be more cerebral but just feels false like falls flat for my taste like i'm all for cerebral but i just don't think he's able to pull it off i think that the scripts are like generally not the highlight of most of his movies but can be really effective when they are at their most sort of terse and functional like there's there's no lyricism to most of his films but there is a sort of like uh getting the points across with like minimal vocal information and maximum visual effects I, yeah i think he's very much more uh let's say storyboard oriented like he can see the overall picture yeah. but when it comes to some of the like smaller details like dialogue and stuff he can kind of fall short yeah um, but but visually, like phenomenal. visually, yeah, he'll, his movies are super detailed. But it's those those things, and and I, you know, again, like I don't, I don't have any, like Carpenter. You get the sense of like "fuck you, pay me" is his motto now. Whereas like Cronenberg, uh, reading interviews of him seventy and like like older, he seems to be like quite the the continued gentleman. And I guess I'll touch on that just a little bit now before we dive into the movies. But the one thing that I read and consistently it seems to be the case is that he's like nothing but if not a gentleman and like truly just like not you know god forbid we hear about something in the future but like he's never sexually assaulted anybody has never taken advantage like is just like a guy who makes the kinds of movies he wants to make with the people who's willing to jump on board and um is just like a like a good dude through and through who just has like an interesting vision on everything he does and like that's it. Like there's, there, I didn't read a bad thing about him anywhere, which was pretty fucking shocking. And part of it is because he's outside of um, the U.S. studio system. I feel like in part, and just a slight yeah. tidbit. Did you know that he was going to be potentially tapped to direct Return of the Jedi? No. Yeah, because uh, Lucas was blacklisted from the Directors Guild in the U.S. because they didn't put their director's credit at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. So. Like, they said you can't use anybody who's in the American Directors Guild, so he couldn't basically use an American director. And the guy that they did use was Welsh. But they were looking at Cronenberg and Lynch and a couple other, like, total fucking wild... What the I think, fuck? I don't know if it was Jodorowsky or something, like, equally, but, like, we could have had a really wild ride <laughs> for Return of the Jedi. Uh, but Cronenberg was like, nah, bruh. So... Yeah. Wow. I think it was like making Videodrome or had just made Videodrome. I was like, I'm good. I got my own thing going. I'm doing cocaine with James Woods right now. No, no. I'm watching he's James not a Wood drug, do cocaine. He's not a drug user. He's, wow. Yeah, no. So uh, He's just a wholesome Jewish Canadian? Yeah, basically. He, he loves to ride his bike. He like, well, like has a glass of wine once every 10 years. Like The guy's not a teetotally either, but... So I, I, we're going to do the film discussion first because like, that's the, the meat yeah. of this thing. And, you know... As I said, we're not doing a deep dive, but I will get into some of that stuff. But I was really, I wasn't that shocked because his movies lack so much of that emotionality. Like, I feel like most directors who have a, are deeply in touch with what it's like to, like, you know, abuse drugs or this, that, or the other, oftentimes have, like, partake, you know, and, and they understand the sort of, like, raw nerve emotionality or the lack thereof, but, like, still with that duality aspect of it and all those types of like grittiness of like real drug use in a way that like Cronenberg's don't reflect that. Like he's able to like tap into some like sort of ideas of what that could be like, but like his movies, it's part of why naked lunch. If you, have you ever watched naked lunch? Mm -hmm. 
So he, he attempted Burrow's naked lunch, which, like, if there was anybody who could try to do it, it was him. But it's sort of, it doesn't really, part of why it doesn't measure up is, like, it's got the weirdness of Burrow's, but, like, you can't really touch, like, somebody who's an, like, you know, an active heroin yeah. addict versus somebody who's never, like, probably taken a Percocet. Like, it's just, it's kind of, in, in those ways, it, it doesn't work out. But, Yeah. So his first two films, which I have not seen, are Stereo, which was in black and white, and Crimes of the Future, which is in color, and they were like actual feature films in the sense that they did get limited theatrical release, and they were both over 60 minutes. Now this, some of this information is taken um, by a Slant Magazine article called Fear the Flesh, David Cronenberg's films ranked. I don't mm. agree with their rankings per se, but... They gave me a little bit of extra info for some of them. So, so Stereo is from 1969, and it's an abstract and bone-dry collage of images and sequences of young telepaths interacting in a vast corporate building, while disembodied narration tells us of the experiments that are being performed on them. Sounds kind of like Scanners. It is. It's a precursor to Scanners. Okay. So, uh, And then his next film was Crimes of the Future from 1970, which has a, quote, deadpan aesthetic that would find... Uh, fruition in later films and it has the same kind of narration over a bunch of basically weird images and stuff like this and they sound kind of like you know your your prototypical sort of early art filmy type of things so i'm going to change the world by making a weird movie that nobody's gonna watch so yeah so those were them and then then we got shivers also known as the Parasite Murders, also known as They Came From Within, also known as Frisians. So Shivers was his, like, technically, like, first real well-known movie. Right. And it was his first one produced by Ivan Reitman, who would produce, like, a shitload of his films going forward. Um, it came out in October 1975, and it had an estimated budget of about $179,000 Canadian, which is probably, like, $120,000 American. And that's not adjusted for inflation, but, you know, is like, practically nothing. So, the movie did not get the best reception. Oh, really? Yeah, shocker that that might be in the 70s that horror films weren't getting treated with, um... The reverence they are now? Yeah, well, not even the reverence, just, like, the lack of understanding from, uh, you know, main, um, critics. There were boobs and violence that made me angry. Yeah, um, it actually got, like, a kind of decent review from Roger Ebert, who is notoriously huge hates dickhead. Hates horror movies. Yeah, hates horror movies and just, like, shouldn't fucking review them, because if it's not your thing, like, shut the fuck up. But it was also was a double on a double bill in U.S. theaters with the movie Snuff, which is um, that snuff film about, or a movie about snuff films in South America, where life is cheap, as the tagline for the movie is says. But, yeah, a lot of people said, like, it's all just depraved sex and violence, and it's this, that, and the other, and it's all gross and whatever. And, you know, it's hard to, from my perspective, at least for the horror I like, it's hard to imagine a world existing without Cronenbergian body horror. But, you know, at the time, nobody knew that that was going anywhere. And Christ, even when it hit its sort of apex with John Carpenter's The Thing, people still trashed that movie like nobody's business because they just didn't understand the marvelous masterpiece that was in front of them so i agree we've talked about how much i love body horror yeah yeah 
And I mean, my body is horrible, so. No, yeah. it's beautiful. I You're beautiful. I mean, you do have a face growing out of your torso, but. I do, I do. I like to give a little kisses and feed it grapes. Yeah. So, the next movie by Cronenberg was the 1977 film Rabid, which I have on a Japanese Laserdisc that looks really cool. Oh. I know, it's a shame my Laserdisc player doesn't work. But it features Marilyn Chambers, who's famous for her role in the mainstream pornographic film Deep Throat. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty fun. Does she do full penetration in this movie? Not that I remember. I think this is, was it post-Deep Throat or... Or no, she does, I'm sorry, Behind the Green Door. God, what an idiot. Uh, yeah, which was another one. During that whole era of, like, 70s big deal pornos that everybody went to see so they could, like, talk about how progressive they were with their fucking nerd friends. And, um, anyway, so she's in it, and it's... So she's got this, like, this sort of vaginal wound in her armpit but it shoots out like a stinger that infects people and what yeah she's like is like rabid and keeps infecting people and there's a bunch of like grisly scenes and it's more graphic i only watched it once and i think it was actually i guess i was in law school because it was when i started collecting laser discs again but i must have been then hammered because it was law school so it's been a long time, um, but I remember it was a little disappointing, but also pretty awesome. I feel like an armpit is a poor place to put a, an attack mechanism. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's all like, oh, let me give you a hug. Oh, bam! Oh, gotcha, yeah. bitch. Let or me like, give you a picture. Yeah, or maybe she's like, I'm going to like stretch my arm up, and then bam! You know. it's a, it's. Let me put my hair up so I can give you oral sex. Bam! Yeah, exactly. So, I can see it working. Yeah, the old wham bam, thank you, ma'am. Wham bam. Uh, go next movie. Yeah. So, I guess we should have done this a little bit earlier, but uh, the, the sort of themes start with these. I mean, they really start from the beginning, but they just continue to get developed, and we've already touched on it a little bit. I, I mean, I guess if you're listening to this and you don't know what body horror is, what the heck? Like I'm surprised, but how have you gotten this far? Yeah, right. Like, why I are hope you listening this to the a first episode, episode you're on? Yeah, yeah, but no, I mean, so like, body horror is basically this like using practical effects generally to to show like deformities of the human body, often which are progressive and serve a function, oftentimes as far as the plot goes. Yeah, and it, it's it ranges from horror movies to anime to like it's it it's a very sci-fi horror yeah type thing i mean a lot of times it's lumped in not lumped in but like can be used along with like cyberpunk or whatever and so it's basically essentially like when things happen to your body that are horrifying yeah that cause you to mutate or stretch yeah so like you could say that like the xenomorph like when the facehugger implants the alien in alien and then it bursts from the chest like, that is, like, a level of body horror, although it's yeah. not the main focus of the film. It's, like, something inside the body, like, bursts out and whatever. And that's, like, a kind of, like, very bo- body horror light. But it still focuses on, like, something internal that you can't see is, like, wrong. And, and that's, like, a kind of classic. Yeah, it all often moves towards, like, mutation right. and, and stuff like that. But, like, you'll see in Shivers, you know, there's the whole... The parasites, like, keep showing up in people's abdomens and then, like, moving around. And one of the main guys is, like, you know, talking to the parasites. Yeah. <laughs> and then 
they start to come out. Hey and like, there, boy. Yeah. Hey, boy. And, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. We're, or in Shivers, where it's like there's this mutation this woman has that causes her to, like, constantly attack people and seek blood and, and all the rest. And, or, did I say Shivers? I meant Rabid. And, um, again, is like, features, like, a mutation. And it part of the body horror is, like, it keeps you separate and apart from other people. And it's sort of this, like, creates an isolation that is generally, like, part of either the overall theme or, um, you know, speaks to a character's motivations, not just in Cronenberg films, but in films generally uh, that have this kind of element. Um, but, you know, it's most of the time a bad thing, like, hence the horror aspect of it. It's not cool like the X-Men. It's like your face is, like, half fallen off and yeah. shit and there's worms inside it's, it, it. It's gross. Yeah, it's normally pretty but gross. But awesome. And it's not just... American horror that loves it, but Japanese horror and Japanese animes love it a lot. But I think that's also mostly due to Cronenberg and the thing. Yeah. Like, uh, Parasite the Maxim is rife with body horror, and then you have uh, Akita. Yeah, I was going to say. Which is just. Yeah. Whew. Hugely influenced by both of those directors. And, uh, and to just go back a little bit more on Rabid. Um, you know, the from this same Slant Magazine article, they talk about, like, the sort of whole penis envy, Freud aspect, whatever. There's a lot of, like... I, and I guess it's the other part of the body horrors, and, and especially with Cronenberg's films early on, is there's this focus on the sexual aspect of it. And, um, you know, often the mutations can be sexual in nature or sexually transmitted. It's like... It's the same thing that, again, like, Alien pulls off of a little bit, like, Geeker, especially with his artwork, is, like, turning sex into something more mutated and terrifying and, like, you know, and kind cold. of... Yeah, not and not, as, not necessarily cold, but maybe goopy. Well, Goopier in, than in, in Geiger's, it's it's very cold and... True. And uh, almost mechanical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is kind of his shtick. Anyways, we'll move on from there. So, we're, we're these themes are, for the next couple of movies, they're just gonna, we're gonna get into it a little bit more and more. Yeah. And I, you know, we will point them out more as we get to said movies. So Cronenberg married his first wife before shivers in 1972, Margaret Hinson. And in 1979, they got divorced and it was extremely ugly. So they're not the movie we're going to talk about now, but the next movie is going to, it's going to be hugely influenced by this process uh, he later was remarried and happily married until his second wife sadly passed away. But um, I just want to sort of set that up. So the next movie he did, which was a movie I didn't even know he did, never even think I've heard of it before until I started researching for this episode, is called Fast Company. Never even heard of it. Yeah, it's about drag racers in Canada. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was filmed at the Edmonton International Speedway Speedway in Edmonton, Alberta, Western Canada. And they fuse with their cars. No. <laughs> There's no horror at all. It's, no, just, it's just about drag racers, and it's got John Saxon in it, so it's automatically really? kind of on my list now, because John Saxon's fucking great. John Saxon is fucking great. Yeah, it's from 1979, and let's see, at this point... Uh, Howard Shore is still not involved. I think I think the next one is where he starts up with him. So, um, yeah, it was supposed to be a bit of a flop. Most people thought it was not so great. Actually, it's got like a looks like a pretty decent critical review on Rotten Tomatoes. But all the articles I've read that are 
like since have none of them talk about it kindly. They basically say the sort of cold style of Cronenberg doesn't really work for that type of thing. Yeah, when it's like a movie that's supposed to be all sweat and leather and hot engines and hot women and stuff, it's just a bunch of like wooden people going fast in car, haha. So, you know. It would have been so much better if they fused with the cars. It would be, that would be pretty cool. But they don't. I did do DXM one time, though, and thought that I had become part of my car. And when I said so with the people who were in it with me, they were like, are you good to go? And I was like, we're driving, and I'm part of the car, so I think we're fine. They were like, that is extremely disconcerting. But I got everybody to their destination safely. We went to a Quiznos as part of that nice. trip. I remember. Back when Quiznos was a fucking thing. Yeah, I didn't know that Quiznos, Quiznos wasn't a thing anymore, but, you know. No, it's not. When was the last time you saw Quiznos? The last time I was there. Which was? Maybe in 2005. Yeah. Hey, we're Quiznos. Do you care if this sandwich is toasted? Not really? I guess we'll close. <laughs> Quiznos. Well, I just remember taking a long time. Well, yeah, they had to... <laughs> toast it. They had to toast it. Well... I should have figured out a faster system for that. It was just Subway with extra steps. Yeah, yeah. So the next film is sort of where a lot of people say Cronenberg really hit his stride. And I have to watch this one again. Now, you haven't seen this, right? The Brood? I think I might have, but I don't remember it. Okay. It sounds very familiar. Yeah, so this came out in 1979. It got its original release on May 25th in the U.S. and June 1st uh, in Canada. The Brood was filmed on a budget of approximately $1.5 million Canadian, and it was a financial success, and executive producer Victor Solnicki, who also produced Scanners and Videodrome, called it his favorite Cronenberg film. Uh, Cronenberg called it his most classic horror film that he's done along with The Fly and Dead Ringer Dead Ringers and one of his most autobiographical so as I mentioned previously the, the film in part deals with um, the breakdown of his marriage or at least was hugely influ influenced by it and the sort of ugliness that resulted during that breakdown and how it affected him and his daughter from his first wife Cassandra Cronenberg and so the movie is about these demonic children who are showing up and essentially killing people related to the main character and his daughter. And the main character's wife, who he's separated from, is in this like experimental therapy uh, ward. And Oliver Reed is her doctor, and he does all this like weird different therapy with people basically the husband's fought, fighting like having this big custody battle with his wife but she's at this place part of the time and once his daughter shows up with bruises he goes to confront his wife and then finds out like all this crazy shit's happening and like it involves the therapy and basically like her anger is creating these demon children who uh are doing her bidding because they're like psychically linked to her that's awesome yeah they're like physical manifestations of her rage and despair and the movie ends on a downer note and sort of speaks to the cycle of violence and harm that people do to one another in the family structure which is pretty cool but the children look like super goofy and i just remember it being like pretty dang off-putting for me i know that it's supposed to be one that a lot of the people love but um 
It just like I feel like it's the kind of movie that because it has this autobiographical element, so many critics are so quick to talk about that and talk about like, you know, the significance of how these how this breakdown of the marriage um, creates this physical manifestation. The, yeah, know, they're right? ridiculous. They yeah. look like they look like uh, Star Trek villains. Yeah, and and how that's so profound. And I guess maybe it's partially because I do family law. Like I don't, I don't find any of that to be particularly profound. Like I know that divorces are ugly and whatever, um, but also, it's like it's easier to defend as a film and say it's good when it's not just straight schlock horror it's not even schlock like it's not like scanners and rabbit or schlock but it's not like a straight horror film it has this extra element this emotional yeah. core and it's like i'd much rather watch scanners i'd much rather watch shivers like i just just personally i mean i i'll, I'll give the brood another watch but it's not been it's just not ever been one of my favorites but like i said it was well received it made money back so it allowed him to continue um, you know, to keep operating with even bigger budgets uh, from that point forward. Well, the thing is, is, like, I like to look at old school horror movies to see, like, if they were made today, if they would, if I would like them. And uh, I have a feeling that if someone was like, yo, you want to go see this movie about these, like, mutated kids who, like, kill people? I'd be like, no. Well, I think it's all how it's done, and I feel like we should watch it together because I think you would like it. Like, it's it's still got the weirdness of any other Cronenberg film, but it just, on the whole, just doesn't hit as hard for my taste mm -hmm. as a lot of other stuff. Like, Oliver Reed in it, though, and The Wife are both awesome. Like, they give really good performances that sort of go beyond that usual direction that Cronenberg has of, like, stilted emotionality and things like that. And like a lot of his other films, the main character's the weaker of the, the actors and is sort of like this... Not necessarily passive, because in this, especially in this movie, he's not a passive observer. But I feel like a lot of his films early on, like the sort of main focus is like they're just a cipher for the audience, and this is kind of one of those where it's a little bit less like that, but still, he's less interesting compared to the wife, and especially compared to Oliver Reed, because this is like I'm pretty sure. No, I guess I mean this was '79, so Oliver Reed lived for another. 20 years but yeah. it feels like it was right before he died because he was you know Oliver Reed's like a famous drunken Englishman and he, he just really hams it up he's good he's <laughs> good so yeah alright alright so we're gonna go back to the movies the last thing I want to say about um The Brood is that it is the first time that he partners with Howard Shore who subsequently goes on to score every single movie he's done since except for one and Howard Shore I'm pretty sure is the one who was tapped to do Lord of the Rings I think was his big I think so finally big break let me let me just double check that for you real quick yeah Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit Howard Shore is also um, from Toronto Canada and basically works well with Cronenberg because he he knows how to make a dark score that has is also engaging as an independent piece of like music and uh, also change the sort of focus things. It's not, he's not like all big orchestra. It's not all synthesizer. He like really, he really tailors the instruments and the sounds and the vibes of his scores to meet the films as one should, if you're right. going to score movies, but he's exceptional. And 
I will just say, as far as my opinion goes, his score for the movie Crash, Cronenberg's Crash from 1996, is like one of the greatest film scores ever. It's this very, like, precedes most, basically like was like on the forefront of the post-rock explosion of the later half of the 90s, like Mogwai, Godspeed You Black Emperor, and those types of bands. It has this like shimmering, dark, ambient guitar work that is super good and super good with the movie and it's just like fucking awesome but we'll get back to that so yeah that partnership starts there and continues to be fruitful throughout their mutual careers funny what you can do when you're not a dickhead director <laughs> yeah right it's funny like the more we go into this the more it seems like uh <coughs> cronenberg is like the good boy the 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 good little boy canadian of horror and I mean, I know we keep referencing it, but we did an episode on Carpenter, and like Carpenter's like the bad boy who I do what I want and I get in my way, otherwise I don't do it. Yeah, to a point. But I mean, Carpenter's also just like I think he partially wants to come off as being so like dickish and laissez-faire in his interviews, and I mean, I'm sure he was also that way to a point too. Like his best movies are great because he was allowed to do what he wanted with his unique vision. But also, his vision sometimes is stupid. So, yeah. you know, not all of his movies are aces. and um, A bunch of them were it. Yeah, and like he had, I feel like he has more duds and more duds throughout his career than Cronenberg is pretty much from, like, from his first main movie, which is Shivers, up until, like, early 2000s. He's got, like, a almost 30-year run of just, like, solid good films. Yeah, as soon as, soon as, soon as Carpenter hit the 90s, it was all downhill. Yeah. Although, Carpenter's Vampires was... is not a good movie, and does feature James Woods, but uh, is very fun. So, yeah. But is also quite terrible. Yeah, but then he did that Ghost of Mars movie. And yeah, we, we, uh, we've been there. Let's not rehash the Ghost of fucking Mars. Oh, God. Yeah. So the next one is uh, one of those ones that I feel like more people have seen the famous scene from it than have ever watched it, but 1981 Scanners, which is one of my fucking favorite Cronenberg films. Like, this movie fucking rules. And so first of all, Michael Ironsides is in it. Yes, yes he he is. He is fucking awesome. I mean, he was like, in the 80s and 90s, he had tons of bit parts. He was like a great character, barely even a character actor, really, because he was mostly just Michael Ironsides. Yes always pissed off and like partially bald um but he plays a fantastic villain to an extremely boring main character um but there it's it's basically about people who have these psychic powers as the result of a a drug that was introduced for this uh i think it was morning after pill sickness type shit and it gives all these women um basically it mutates some of their children to have like psychic abilities and I don't want to get into it because it doesn't matter as much, but I can't really remember if it's all intentional or if it's partially accidental, but basically they do... I know that like the later half is essentially Michael Ironside starts to try to produce more of these psychic babies to create like a sort of X-Men psychic Magneto. army. Yeah, yeah. It's like sort of like Magneto, like the mutants should take over where like the next step of evolution, which I'm always... I, I like that kind of stuff. Like, <laughs> I yeah, sign me up. Mutate me. You know, I'm ready. So, um, it's very cool, if I, if I could describe it that way. It's fucking rad, radical. There's a shitload of shotguns. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very sure that if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, but you are familiar with horror, I'm sure you've seen the snippet. 
Are you s- big time spoiler alert. I mean, you've probably already seen it, but like, I just want to throw a spoiler on this one because it's so funny. Okay. Good. If you haven't seen Scanners... Skip ahead like 30 seconds. Yeah. Michael Ironsides makes a man's head explode while sitting next to him. <laughs> and there's that fucking Sweet Mortician song uh, where they use that sample to start it. God. Jin, 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 jin. Yeah. yeah, that movie's good. And there's a very, let's say, interesting fight see- scene at the end. I'm not going to talk about it because you have to see it to believe it, but uh movie's great. Yeah, so the movie was a success. It grossed $15 million at the box office. It's not like, it's not his best movie in the sense of there's some slow parts and, and whatever. Some of the, again, performances are weak, but like, okay, first of all, there's not that much psychic warfare stuff, unfortunately, but there's a scene where a bunch of computers and shit get exploded because of people's psychic powers, which is just really cool. And there's a bunch of old computers and, like, reel-to-reel tape machines and, like, reel-to-reel computers, which is just, like, cool. And then, like, <laughs> and then like the, the whole scene at the end where it's like, we're going to do it like Skinner's do. I'm going to suck your brain dry. And they're like, Wah! And, like, the cover's, like, it's, 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 like, the last scene in the movie. It's very cool. Yeah, um, yeah. And... And, uh, but, the, but also like a bunch of people get shot with shotguns. Just yeah, like, there is a lot of people who get shot with shotguns yeah, in that movie. Fucking awesome. So, you know, it, it's extremely gory when there is violence and there's a lot of violence. Like it's pretty remorseless. It's pretty quick. Do you moving. think there was like one scene they had planned with a shotgun death and Cronenberg saw the, the, the visual effects. He was like, let's do that. Like a bunch more yeah, times. Like every 10 minutes. Rad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It, it has it extremely very much like a, a Verhoeven type of vibe, like uh, a la like um, Starship Troopers, but more more like Total Recall, where just like if, if one squib would do, then they use ten squibs. Yeah, and you're just like <laughs> sick. <laughs> so you know that's pretty that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to talk about scanners in any kind of remotely objective way because there's not so much to dissect or take apart. Like it's it's sort of like a sci-fi, not like an action film, but like a sci-fi body horror, whatever. Just like it's, it's kind of a side piece, but it's so fucking sweet. Like it's just, it, it, the whole way it comes it's together. It's a really long X-Files episode. Yeah, but like way radder. Yeah. And there's no Cronenberg. I mean, if Gillian Anderson was in it, then it would be like a top tier oh, film. But God. Yeah. So, so he does that, but being the, the, um, so Scanners goes well. It's a financial success, like I said. Gross is fifty million. Um, fifty or fifteen? Fifteen, fifteen. Okay. And uh, from there, he goes to what is one of the most well-known Cronenberg films. When when they reference it on like Rick and Morty or in anything else, you're basically thinking of The Fly, and you're thinking of this bad boy, which is Videodrome. Hell yeah! So Videodrome I- again is it's difficult to. Uh, talk about it objectively i've seen it a lot of times um it unfortunately was a box office flop and it's fucking weird like i could only imagine this coming out in 1983 and people like go you know what i mean they'd just be like right, what, is, what are you fucking kidding me what is this i like mean now? if it came out now it probably wouldn't be all that well received except on like strange internet message boards you know yeah. what i mean true true um, it was made on a budget of fi- 5.9 million and had a box office total of 2.1 million so it's like a damn sight difference from scanners, and it's kind of 
I guess it's it's a much more cerebral film, but it's funny like how much less money it made. It's kind of shocking. And I'm pretty sure you guys already know that we're huge fans of this movie, being as that our opening samples it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. Um, so it stars James Woods and oh, Deborah boy. Harry, and it, it is visually still to me one of the most striking movies ever you know like stalker by tarkovsky or solaris like they're striking in a way that like they he provides you know these extremely slow films with powerful images that you know he uses over the course of three and a half hours with 10 minutes of dialogue or like i i guess tarkovsky movies actually have a lot more dialogue than that but they're they're extremely effective in a different way and the entire imagery of this red clay room with big pillars and like people tethered to them that whipped well, by people in rubber suits. Let, let's let's kind of like break down a little bit what the movie is about. Sure. So, part of me kind of believes that um, Cronenberg approached James Woods and was like, "I want to make a movie, and I, I like the things you do. I like you to be in it." And James Woods was like, "That's cool, but let me tell you a story about one night where I watched porn all night while on drugs." Yeah. And a story they made a video porn coke. Yeah. No, that isn't what happened, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, that that would be fun. So the movie actually, when they started shooting, they um, they had financing problems from the get, and they didn't have a script finished, even close to finished. They were basically writing and rewriting the movie on a daily basis. That makes sense. So this is one of the ones that, granted, I haven't watched these documentaries in a while, but I've watched a lot about how they made it and what they did and the effects and everything. I mean, they just had... His effects team was working on stuff... It was a lot like the thing, nonstop. They were just churning shit out, and he was like, yes, no, maybe. There was this whole bit they were going to have where Deborah Harry and um, James Woods were going to have these mutation, like, sex organs on their hands, and they were going to, like, hand-fuck each other. Yeah, and, and this is definitely one of his movies that you can definitely see, like, a lot of, like, the fallacy in it and, and stuff like that. Oh, the phallic stuff, you yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, James Woods eventually develops this, like, stomach vagina thing, and then he puts his hand in it, and he pulls out, like, a goop gun that's like fused to his hand and uh <laughs> all this stuff but it basically it deals so one of the cool things about it and i think i saw it the first time in college which was the, kind of the perfect time and i watched it because like most things in my life i heard a sample from it in a song i liked and then was like i need to see this movie but it perfectly coincided with a class i had um shout out to professor dr eric novotny uh, he was one of the best teachers I've ever had. If he ever hears this, I'm so sorry. I promise <laughs> I'm doing better things than just this. Um, but he, I had two different classes with him. And in the first class, we talked about international communications and communications theory. And he talked about Brian McCullough, who is the uh, inspiration and basically like direct inspiration for Dr. Brian Oblivion, which is like an anagram for brain oblivion. Um, who is the creator or no, he, he basically suffers from video drum, but he doesn't, does he help create? I think he helps create the optometrist guy. Helps I create. Think so. Yeah. They, they steal his research to make mm -hmm. video drum. But anyway, the, the whole idea is so Brian McCullough is famous for most famous for the medium is the message, which is to say that, um, as important as the message you receive is the media you receive it on. So like when you read something in a book, it, has an being coming from a book has its own implicit message that you 
integrate into the message that you're receiving from the book in the same way, especially like a newspaper is its own message or a tweet is its own. The fact that it's a tweet has its own meaning and creates a new context for the communication that goes along with the communication itself and was extremely prescient in like the seventies and shit when he wrote this as to technology was developing then like not even being close to predicting, uh, well, or being very close rather to predicting sort of the developments in technology and the way that we receive media would so hugely shape the way we would then uh, interpret the same media and interpret the world subsequently. Like, you know, everything we live now is filtered through the glass screen of our iPhones, basically, or or smartphones and shit. And um, so all that adds, like, this level of excellence to Videodrome that was so far ahead of its time that, like, it really shines now 20... Uh, what is it, 27 years after its release? Yeah. So, or 37 years. 37 Shit, years. As of it, yeah, I'm getting 82. old. I know. So, um, so you've got all that element, but basically, James Woods runs a sleazy TV, he runs a sleazy TV network uh, in Toronto called CCTV. It's the TV you go to bed with, and they show porno. And then his uh, guy who basically searches out like new and hardcore stuff and whatever gets this pirate signal from Videodrome, which is just torture, murder. Very, very realistic. And um, and he's like, I got to show it. And then he becomes obsessed with it. And then a bunch of crazy shit happens. And I don't think we should go into it more than that. No. You should watch it. Debbie Harry's in it. You see her titty. It's pretty sick. Yeah. And then he pierces her ear with a needle and you're like, cool. Yeah. And then like she has him like put a cigarette out. On her, on her, and like you're like, no, that's hot. Yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty naughty. Um, the, uh, I actually watched it before college, when I was in the midst of a massive coke binge with this young woman, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I forgot. Yeah, it was like <laughs> there I, it is, it's back. Yeah, no, it was, dude. We had like this fucking. We it was the tail end of a bender she went home and i had to go to work in a couple hours but my house was empty and she called me up and was like i don't know what to do with myself can i come back over like i actually still have some blow and i was like you fucking dirty bitch she was like i'm gonna bring over a video drone and we watched like half of it while we were just railing lines and like doing bad bad stuff yeah and then i went to work it was like it was a fucked day dude (laughs) that was that was oh my god yeah but um Grunts, Terror and Degeneration, the first half of that album is all samples from this movie. And that was why I watched it in college. And then it was like mixed in perfectly with that Brian McCullough stuff I was learning about. And, uh, oh, yeah. It's a good movie. And that's your Eight favorite? Out of ten. Well, okay. So, like, we'll get to my other favorite. But, like, it's kind of a tie for me between that and The Fly. Okay. Um, you give it an eight out of ten. You don't give it higher. Uh, well, it, it, it no, eight out of ten. Really? It's very. It's very rare that like. No, I give it a nine. It doesn't get a ten. You can't give it a ten. Can't give it a ten. It's very rare that a movie gets like a ten out of ten for me. Yeah, I, I would give it a nine point five. Like it's. Part of it's a bunch of stuff related to when I first watched it, or like first really watched it. And wasn't on a ton of coke. Um, and a bunch of stuff that surrounds it. Like, I just like everything about it. And that the whole, all the torture scenes are so... The, the stuff when they're showing the video drum signal, like, that whole room is just hugely, like, cool, interesting, aesthetically influencing for me. 
Long Live the New Flash, it ends with, you know, bang, like, oh, it's fucking so rad. Yeah. But fair enough. I mean, that's that's a fair point. So, simultaneously, he had a, um, Cronenberg had a very busy year that year, uh, and not only did he release Videodrome in 1983, but also The Dead Zone, which was a adaptation of Stephen King's 1979 novel of the same name. And who did it star? Christopher Walken. Christopher fucking Walken. Yeah. And Tom Skerritt's in it. And Martin Sheen. So, it was way more financially successful. It cost around somewhere between 7 and $10 million to make, and it grossed somewhere between 16 and $21 million. If you slap Stephen King's name on it in a movie, it's probably... Well, especially in, like, Stephen King's heyday. Like, yeah. this was, like, when he was the hot shit and, you know, at his cocaine-snorting... Like maximum peak, well, I, maximum I, the, overdrive, I, if you will. I do love that book as well. Anyway, but yeah, go ahead. So this was another one. I watched it because there, there's a part where he's screaming about the ice. The ice is gonna break, and it's in an Ice Minus song, which is drum and bass uh, duo out of the UK. And I liked that song a lot. And I was like, <laughs> got to see this this here uh, Dead Zone. I watched it with my mom. She was like, Yeah, book was better. It's like, Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I've never read the book. Never read a Stephen King book. But I've got a bunch. Yeah, so basically, uh, the main dude gets in a car accident, right? And he gets in a coma? Yeah. And then he wakes up and has, like, the ability to see the future, essentially, right? That's the shorthand? And, yeah, and dead people, yes. And deck people? Dead people. Oh, right. And so he basically gets involved trying to, to prevent some bad stuff from happening, but it's sort of like a butterfly effect when you, you know, save one person, maybe worse things happen. Um, I don't really have a lot to say about it as far as it. I haven't watched it in 20 years, maybe. Or, it's also got Martin Sheen in it. I said that. Did you? Yeah, he's the president. Uh, yeah. uh, 16 years, probably something like that. Um but it did really well. You know, Cronenberg, for every flop he had financially, um, and a lot of those movies have since come to be so revered, much like Videodrome, uh, he had really fi financially successful ones that allowed him to keep making movies, and especially effects-heavy movies, which, you know, always yeah. have a high I, I love that movie. I also was a huge fan of the TV series, but it's it's definitely not my favorite. And this is even excluding The Shining. Like, it's, mm. it's definitely not my favorite Stephen King horror movie, which outside of The Shining is Bad Cemetery. Yeah, and it's funny because a lot of people when it came out said it was one of the best Stephen King adaptations that had been done, and maybe it was up to that point. It strays from the book, but um, still is pretty faithful, and just got like, you know, it had good acting and, and um, a good director behind it. I'm sorry, he can't see dead people. My bad. Okay. So yeah, so he can't see dead people. We couldn't remember. Um... But yeah, so that's the dead zone. Uh, anything more before we go into the next really great one? Uh, well, um, I'm pretty sure that and a bunch of other Stephen King horror movies are available for free on Amazon Prime and Hulu. So if you do want to go watch it, you can watch it for free if you have one of those sites. There you go. So Cronenberg's next film is one of, I think, one of his most universally acclaimed, beloved influential in a different way and just we we rewatched it about six months ago and like holy shit did that movie fucking yeah, hold up it's so good yeah is 1986 the fly 
which is uh, based on the George Langeland's uh, 1957 short story, which was also made into a movie in 1958. It was one of many remakes in the 80s of, like, sort of golden era Hollywood movies being remade with, like, gross, you know, way more serious effects. Like, the original movie's like a goofy creature feature. Well, yeah, because pretty much in the original, he just has a fly head and one fly hand, yeah. and it's clearly a mask and a glove. Yeah, although awesome mask and glove. That's I mean, true, I would yeah. wear that to court. But, uh, no, this one instead has the incredibly sexy... Uh, Jeff Gina Goldblum. Well, yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> but also Gina Davis, who, yeah. like, I did not realize was such a fucking fox. Oh, man. Yeah. They fox. both crush it in that movie. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so one could, one could read it as a parable for the, uh, the, the, the perils of amphetamine or cocaine abuse. I mean, not really. I'm half joking, but when we were watching it, we kept talking about like Jeff Goldblum just seems like he's coked out yeah. his fucking gourd, like especially post. But I think that's just Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, and yeah, right. That's a really fair point. <laughs> uh, but you know, so the the short version of the story is Jeff Goldblum's working on this teleporter and being the sort of uh, he's extremely insecure in some ways and then like an egomaniac in others he's, you know, he's the egomaniac with an inferiority complex kind of a situation and Gina Davis is this reporter and he falls pretty hard for her partially because she gives him attention and otherwise he's kind of like a this is like post Jeff or pre Jeff Goldblum re um, renaissance like this is after the big chill so he's people know who he is but he's still like very much like 80s sleazy kind of weird Jeff Goldblum yeah. and like he's like a weird daddy now but like back then he was just kind of like oh like real greasy looking I love it yeah no I know it's really good um that greasy fucking uh what's the word I'm looking for mullet mullet That's yeah a, like oh, Jerry man. curled mullet god and, yeah it's a look and so he winds up you know being unwilling to wait to test his fucking transporter on anything but himself and like sort of to prove a point does it and flies in it and the DNA merges and then he begins his slow and extremely grotesque transformation into a like human fly Brundlefly Brundlefly and uh <laughs> Brundlefly is a a tragic character if ever there was one like the movie was surprisingly emotionally resonant when we watched it. Like, I legitimately mm -hmm. felt bad for them. Like, he's a fucking asshole to Gina Davis, so, like, you mostly feel bad that, like, she thinks it's okay to be treated so poorly by both her ex-boss and lover, uh, or her current boss and ex-lover, who's a fucking asshole piece of shit. I, forget, yeah, I don't even know the guy who plays him, but he's just, like, total scumbag. Yeah, he's super, real bad. Yeah, super believable. Um, but, you know, then also is... is in love with and of course pregnant with the the fly seed and her like watching him just transform and degrade and you know he becomes emotionally more and more insect like and less human emotion but like the whole when he first comes out and is all like he's just like shoveling sugar into his coffee and doing all these fucking spins on the railing in the uh the big warehouse he's got the teleporters in and he he's just talking about and picks up the chick yeah it's it's all sorts of Oh, so good. But then his teeth are falling out and his nails are falling off and his skin's all just Brundle flying <laughs> apart. And hey, kids, do you want to see how Brundlefly eats? Yeah, it's basically like those faces and meth posters, but uh, you're turning into a fly. So, 
Hashtag worth it? Yeah. Hashtag worth it. Um, it's fucking awesome. It's so good. And they made a sequel that I have not seen. You've seen the sequel or not? I've seen parts of it. Yeah, we watched the trailer. It's got to be... We got to watch it. It's, it's very much more of a Giggle Flicks movie. Um, but they've been talking about remaking it or turning it into a TV show. It's one of the many Cronenberg properties that there's like a lot of... Especially because like all the kids that watched it and were hugely influenced by it um, are now all old enough to make their own movies. And I, I just remember it being one of those uh, movies I watched when I was younger, partially due to the fact because... McFarlane's toy line, uh, uh, Todd McFarlane, for listeners who don't know who he is, he's a comic book creator uh, and pretty much runs Image, but um, he he had he did the horror movie toy lines, and uh, that I Brundle had, that Brundlefly I had a Brundlefly is worth a lot of money now. Really? Yeah, I looked it Shit. up on eBay after we watched it. It was like sixty bucks. I was like, I don't need. A oh, that's not either. bad for McFar- like an old yeah Tom yeah. McFarlane. Well, some, some of, of them his are spawn super cheap. toys get really high up there. Yeah, yeah, but um. Yeah, it was like one of those things where like I was at a fucking comic book store and I saw that and I was like, I want it and I bought it and I think I had watched the old one like way back when when I was younger. Like I think my dad was watching it on Sci-Fi Channel back when sure. Sci-Fi didn't make a bunch of shitty movies yeah. and they played old movies yeah. that were good in Sci-Fi. Yeah. But um, oh God, I love that movie. It's probably my favorite. Eh, well... I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say it might be my favorite remake of any movie. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a not an unreasonable thing to say. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, dang it. I lost it. But, yeah, it's 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 a good It's It is an indisputed good I mean, Cronenberg, or Cronenberg, uh, Videodrome, I could understand the... Um, you know how some people couldn't get into it because it's pretty non-linear. It's weird. It's whatever. The Fly is like a much more linear story, and it's a much Completely. more tragic one. Uh, and also, again, I think we we said this earlier, but this is like when people talk about like people getting all Cronenberg, like Brundle Fly is that yeah. penultimate example, along with the sort of transformation of James Woods in Videodrome. But it's real goopy. It's real gross. Oh, I I remember what I was gonna say. It was just I saw. A good chunk of it like I basically saw the last two-thirds of it right after the transformation when I was a kid with my mom and she sort of didn't remember how gruesome it got <laughs> and I just remember like there's a they bang like crazy in the the film like before before his transformation but especially after it's like insatiable he just keeps banging Gina Davis which like I don't blame him and um, there's a part where she's riding him and then she like feels his back and his little, his little fly, fly wings are, yeah, the flyers are coming out. And uh, I just remember being deeply disturbed by that and thinking, I hope I never get back hairs that are coarse like a fly. Um, haven't yet, so living pretty good. I don't know. You got some pretty coarse hairs back there. No, they're mostly all front facing, so small miracles. Fetty fly. Fetty fly, that's right, that's right. Now, the next one is my personal favorite Cronenberg film. And then pretty much from this point, we're going to sort of blow through the rest of these uh, in part for the sake of time and in part because most of them are just not worth spending so much time. There's not not as much to goosh about. Um, so his next film was Dead Ringers, which stars Jeremy Irons and Jeremy Irons as <laughs> identical twin gynecologists. And is based on the lives of Stuart and Cyril Marcus, 
and on the novel Twins by Barry Wood and Jack Geisland, a highly fictionalized version of the Marcus story. So basically, it's about these two twin brothers who are identical twins and gynecologists and essentially like share their lives, their lovers, their everything, their practice and all this. And because they're identical, are able to do it in a way that not everybody knows when they're doing it. And, you know, deals with the level of like dishonesty and personal relationships and things like that, that I mean, only this plot device would allow but the real guys who did it, like, did this, um, and were not good dudes. And, uh, the book sensationalized their story, but also, like, their story was tragic and weird. And, uh, it's one of those things I'd love to read and, and know more about because I find the movie to be so powerful. But it was shot on a budget of $13 million. It only made eight, so it's, of all of his movies in my opinion, like the one, the most deserving of a critical reassessment. I mean, it got actually good reviews for the most part, but I feel like is the one that people need to be exposed to more than any, because it's, it's a lot more cerebral. It's just like his most artistically, um, it's his most artistic film, I guess is what I would say. Like right. in my mind, I think it is Jeremy Irons performance is like, is one of the, like the the best performances ever. Like his ability and the, part of it was the the technology. They do an incredible job of making it seem like effortless the way he portrays Beverly and um oh fuck what's the other twin's name? But oh Elliot. And so Elliot's like the more assertive and confident and everything of the two and then Beverly's the um you know, the less confident and the, the slightly more effeminate, like, in a certain kind of a way. But they basically, like, Elliot will pick up a lover and then, like, allow Beverly to bang the same chick and, like, the chicks don't know and whatever. And this happens with this movie star that then they both become infatuated with. And she's a drug addict and Beverly becomes a drug addict and then Elliot becomes a drug addict. And so much of it really... The, the, the story is really about the bond between the brothers and how they feel that they have to essentially like they're connected on a level that's like beyond just being twins it's like a psychic link and a physical link and when one does one thing then the other has to do it and and like even if they don't want to and they it's essentially like this descent into madness and beverly especially starts to have these hallucinations about alien women and starts to design this gynecological equipment for them and there's all these scenes where they're doing these gynecological operations and they're in like sort of older fashioned doctor like surgeon outfits with like the head covering and the mat like the face covering thing and like these big long robes but they look like imperial royal guards from um the last star wars movie because they're all fucking red and everybody else in the operating room is all, all in red like visually the movie is extremely striking and it's just like it's super fucking sad and like super fucking dark and just like, it's portrayal of, like, drug addiction and, like, the crippling destruction of a person's life, or in this case, two people's lives, and the, the super sick codependency they have. Uh, the first time I watched it was with an ex-girlfriend, and it was just, like, I was fucking crushed by the time it was over. <laughs> and I, I've watched it twice since then, and it's, like, one of those movies that I really love, but can't really watch more than every five years, because it's just, like, super fucking depressing. You want to watch it on Thursday? 
not really no (laughs) (laughs) i mean i do kind of but it's it's it is like it's just you know we talked early on about the the sort of like wooden emotionless performances of his of cronenberg films and basically almost all the movies we've talked about thus far have had that other than the fly was the first one that really sort of allowed like and then this came out next yeah, and then, like, this is, like, this is the peak of it, and it's just, like, I just find it to be, like, really fucking sad, and I don't know, there's, I think, a lot of, like, stuff in my own personal life that, in some ways, like, it makes me think of or whatever, but, um... Are you a twin gynecologist? No, no, but, you know, I don't know, there's just parts of it that, I don't know, it's just, like, I find it to be super effective, and the, the, it's just, like, like I said, the visuals... You know, you get way less of, like, the goopy McGoopster stuff, but when there is body horror, like, it, it deals directly with the sex organs. Like, they're gynecologists. Like, they do bad shit, and and things happen that are, like, fucking awful. Like, when they start to go off the rails and are still operating on their patients, it's like, you see a lot less than in his other movies, but the the stakes are so high. Like, that's, that's your, like, you know, your bits. <laughs> nobody likes that. Like, nobody wants to fuck with those, so... Have you have you seen Dead Ringers? No. Yeah, that's we do have to correct that then I guess sooner than later. Yeah, we do. Thursday, prepare to cry. Fair enough. I love that all of your favorite movies make you want to die. Yeah. <laughs> that is. I think it's my favorite Cronenberg movie. You wanna watch it? No. It makes me too <laughs> sad. So, um, the next one is uh, so his next film was Naked Lunch, which is an adaptation of William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch, but it basically uses the original source material as inspiration, but doesn't follow the book per se. But what the year book, was this? Nineteen ninety one. Okay. But the book is almost like is famous for being unreadable and like completely uh, lacking in like. Uh, normal narrative structure i mean william s burroughs was like you know famous beatnik drug addict etc 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 and that's like his most famous massive tome of like junkie insanity essentially and so the movie's like partially like a biographical piece about william s burroughs which naked lunch also partially is but it's also about like the stories within the book and it features Peter Weller from RoboCop, who is like the sort of quintessential kind of actor for a Cronenberg film because he's so emotionless in the way he does things. Like <laughs> he's not a particularly good actor. And Judy Davis is in it, Ian Holmes in it, and Roy uh, Scheider, who are all like significantly better. And there's this whole scene with Judy Davis, like which is based on when William S. Burroughs accidentally killed his first wife in Mexico because mm-hmm. they were all fucked up and he like tried to shoot an apple or a can or whatever it was off her head and then kills her. But there's this whole like scene right before that where like she's cheating on him and uh they're like huffing all this uh he's an exterminator, the main character, and they're huffing his extermination gas and she's like, Oh, I've got this like Kafka esque vibe because like she feels like a bug, like metamorphosis and I've only watched it once, and I was doing cocaine in a <laughs> smokable form, and uh, it was... Say it. Yeah, no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 
I was slightly out of it, and I was I was extremely like I was fucked up, and this was like it was like a dark period of my life, and I watched a VHS copy of it that was like bootlegged, and it was just it was like, and the movie's about like fucking you know a bunch of drug shit, and I, it just was like yeah, no, I've read Burroughs, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm like I don't need to ever do this again, so it's it was not um, super successful, it was like sent between seventeen and eighteen million to make, and made under three, it was like around two and a half. Um, I mean, he did his best to turn it into something that you could watch, but it's just like, it's an unfilmable book turned into like, not an unwatchable movie. Like, you know, if you want to get into some wild shit, watch it once. If you're a Cronenberg completist, you've already seen it, but like, just not, uh, I don't know. (laughs) Not one I'm going to go back to. I just don't really want to go there. No. Have you seen it? No, I haven't, but I've read Junkie and it once was... I have the book still. Yeah. And once was, like, kind of enough for me. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, I know a lot of people who uh, aren't sober or didn't do a lot of drugs, and they they love, like, Burrows. books and movies like that. Oh, yeah. And, like, I don't see the... It's not fun. No, it's, it's uh, like, you know, because it's, it's like one of those things. It's like, uh, you know, it's like going to the zoo. You know, mm-hmm. you've never experienced being in a cage, but, uh, you know, you're like, oh, look at the lion. That's nice. Yeah. It's interesting, but not for someone who's lived it. Yeah. I mean, visually, like the effects of the film are really cool. The whole like mugwump typewriter thing and the, yeah. uh, like all that kind of stuff is like, re- looks really good. Um, it's just like, I feel like, and probably in some ways I would, I would, probably like it more than I did because like I never really enjoyed like doing coke and watching movies because I was always just like let's do more coke. it hits that same vein as like I never need to see Requiem for a Dream again well yeah no I know and I mean like I feel like Requiem's way more like purposely unpleasant but I also okay let me let me let me let me Although the whole, I never need to see train. Yeah, I never need to see train spotting again yeah I don't I wouldn't want to watch Requiem for a Dream I would watch train spotting over that but they're all just, like, they're movies that are, like, solely focused around addiction in a way that's, like, as somebody who's in recovery, yeah, take a hard pass. Especially because I watched both of those movies, like, 15 times before, like, I ever even snorted. Well, that's, nah, actually, I took that back, but, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so, you know, that's the short, that's the short on Naked Lunch. If you're into that kind of stuff, like, it's definitely, like, you know... That sort of advanced Cronenberg, I guess. Like that's like when he was able to sort of go out on the furthest limb, um, and then then we hit his '90s period, which is sort of up and down. So he did *In Butterfly*, which I haven't seen, which is supposed to be much more like a normal film, and sort of gets into like more of a kind of a, a normal drama type of thing. It also has Jeremy Irons, so I'm tempted to watch it just for that reason because Jeremy Irons is a great fucking actor. What's it about? Uh, so it's loosely based on uh, the true events um, about Bernard Bersicott and Shi Pei Pu. The film <laughs> concerns Rene Gallimard, a French diplomat assigned to Beijing, China in the 1960s. He becomes infatuated with a Peking opera performer who spies on him for the government of the People's Republic of China. Their affair lasts for 20 years, with Gallimard all the while apparently unaware or willfully ignorant of the fact that in the Peking Opera Dawn, roles are traditionally performed by men. So. He's banging a dude? Yeah. And he didn't know for 20 years? Uh, Maybe it's just all head game. How do you... Yeah, but like... 
I so many questions. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know. I've never seen it, and uh, it didn't get very good reviews. So <laughs> I don't know what it was made for, but it made. Does Jeremy Ironsides uh, play no, play the it, man? Michael Ironsides and Mike, Jeremy Irons are two different Terry, people. Michael, does he play? It, does he, does he play the secret uh, gay boy? Gay boy? No. Oh, that would be racist. That, yeah, I guess you're right. So yeah. it was still the '90s, though. Yeah. 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 Moving on. Okay. So from there, we've got Crash, which is his 1996 film, um, which is based on J.G. Ballard's 1973 novel of the same name. J.G. Ballard's a famous sort of transgressive writer who did a bunch of shit that influenced a ton of cool people. Um, a hugely influential writer for industrial music, along with William S. Burroughs, actually. Yeah. And um, is mentioned in... Like, he, he's, he's directly mentioned by Joy Division a bunch of times. Atrocity exib exhibit or exhibition, rather, is... I think either, like, the direct name of a short story he did or... I don't know. A bunch of, like, basically everybody from Britain from the 70s onward that was cool was influenced by J.G. Ballard. I've read a fraction, like, a tiny little bit of his work. I have one of his collected short stories that was put out by Research, which was a, like, pressing company that did all these, like, industrial handbook things from the 80s that are super famous, which also feature William S. Bros. I think I have one of those, too. Um, never read Crash, though doesn't matter the movie is fucking sweet this it is, is a good movie. this is like another one where i watched the first time i was real coked out and then i went and rewatched it because i liked it so much but it features james spader who's fucking awesome in the 90s like now he's all fat and bald and gross but like yeah in the 90s he was fucking sweet he's in less than zero as the uh you know pushy drug dealer and stuff that like makes what's his face robert downey jr well he doesn't have to act in that movie he's just in the midst of a co crippling cocaine addiction, mm. but uh, makes him suck wiener and stuff. And then uh, has Deborah Kara Unger, Elias Codius, and Holly Hunter, and Rosanna Arquette. Um, and it's basically about people who get horny from car crashes. Yep. And features very minimal dialogue, as I previously mentioned, an extremely exceptional score by Howard Shore, and is just like this extremely visually exciting film and is titillating Did in the extreme together? no Did we watch a clip of it or something maybe there's a bunch of samples on agoraphobic nosebleed side of their split with converge from crash so the first time i watched it i was like oh shit i know where is this i know this and we're and just so everyone knows we're not talking about the 2004 movie with sandra bullock no we are not talking about that movie that movie's stupid and garbage but this movie is hot tits candy and uh, I'd much rather watch this on that. You know, we'll talk about it after. That's what we should do. Yeah. Yeah, so this was, again, so I don't know if we touched on it. The Fly made a shitload of money. The Fly a was a huge success. And so, again, as I said before, like, his blunders, his successes allowed him to have blunders and continue to, like, get good work. And Crash was actually, it's amazing to me, um, made on a budget of $9 million, May 23. Which isn't like a ton of money. I mean, we're not talking about Titanic and shit, but... He over-doubled it. Yeah, right, which is a total win. And um, also, like, was famously had an X-rated version that was shown, I think, at some midnight theaters, but was mostly the R version. I've only ever seen the unrated one. 
But Elliot Scodius, who's in like the Prophecy, and I think is probably most famous from Oz, and is in he's also the dude in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the guy with the hockey mask with Casey something. Casey Jones. Casey Jones. Um, I fucking love him, and I love him in this movie, and I love James Spader, and Holly Hunter is pretty good. She's got nice tits, and uh, Roseanne Arquette, the lesser of the Arquette sisters, <laughs> but she's got this big old. Vaginal like leg wound and stuff that he's all like rubbing on it. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, Yeah, it's it's like the detached emotionality or like lack thereof, the detached nature of Cronenberg's directing style works extremely well for like the detached paraphilia that these people have, and like super succeeds in being discomforting and erotic at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it is it is funny because I know plenty of people who love watching car crash videos, whether or not they get sexual release from it is another story, so I won't name them, but I know some. Yeah. So, it was... It got a lot of critical revile because of its subject matter and its, like, brutal depictions of sex and violence and not in your traditional way. Um, but it has, I think, uh, had a lasting legacy that's outlasted the controversy. I mean, but it's still like a movie that you wouldn't watch even with the most liberal of parents. Like, it is... It's a it's a one yeah. for, like, maybe your girl, but probably you alone in a bottle of baby oil. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like... Maybe a piece of scrap metal. Or you and your secret husband while your wife and baby are upstairs sleeping on Thursday night. And from this point, we're going to blaze through these last ones in an effort to get you out of here in a timely fashion. I don't care. uh, I do. Um, (laughs) His next, Cronenberg's next feature film was Existence, which has Jude Law and Jennifer Jason Leigh. I really like Jennifer Jason Lee. She had a short time in the sun. I feel like she had some like personal tragic event that kept her out of acting, and then she showed back up for The Hateful Eight and a couple other things, and is fucking awesome in The Hateful Eight. Uh, what else did I just saw, see her in? I just saw her in something else. Please keep going. Yeah, I think it was something that we watched. Um, but she is way hot, way cool. And the movie is... So the movie feels like Existence. I've watched it once. I have it on Laserdisc. I watched it with Andrew and Chelsea and one of my ex-girlfriends. She was in Annihilation. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um, And it's kind of like a Cronenberg's greatest hits. It has elements of Videodrome. It has, like, kind of elements of Scanners and then, like, tries to take on video games, virtual reality type of stuff. The title makes it sound like it's a pill for your penis. Yeah, it does. It does. It was prescient in the wrong way. Um, You know, you can also pronounce it existence, I guess is how it's supposed to be. But I still, I just always read it as existence, maybe because I've seen too many penis pill commercials. (laughs) But existence is probably the proper pronunciation. Um, So, yeah, it was made for 31 million Canadian slash 50 million US. It made less than three. Oh. Yeah. It's it's not bad, but it's just like it doesn't have any of the edge. The whole like very sexual nature of these uh consoles that they use to plug into and play this game are like they're gross and goofy and Cronenberg and whatever, like they're all the classic like soft fleshy bits of 
tech that you expect at this point. But the overall like way that the movie unfolds and the twists and turns it takes are just like nothing feels that great or profound or like whatever. It's not bad. It's just like comparatively and it's hard to not watch it comparatively. I could just be watching any other prior Cronenberg movie and enjoying myself more. But I do really like Jude Law and I do really like Jennifer Jason Lee, but it's got Willem Dafoe in it. Does it? I can't even remember that. This is yeah, well anyway, but um yeah. Yeah. It is it's a 1999 movie that involves a video game designer. So like everything that comes along with that. Yeah, that's You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very, you know, it's the same year that The Matrix came out. Let's yeah. put it out that way. Yeah. Like it's Yes. You know, it's it is extremely late 90s. Now that you say that, I I sort of forget. Uh his following movie was Spider, which was um Ralph Fiennes finds Is I've it about a spider? No, it's about a guy with schizophrenia trying to unravel some kind of mystery. Um, I've never seen it. It's supposed to be pretty good. I've heard some people say it's like totally fucking bullshit. Um, but generally, wow. yeah, no. But I mean, like generally, like what I've heard is it's pretty good. It's like a good later Cronenberg um, film. It was made for a budget of ten, and then only made five point eight, and. This is like, again, this is kind of where things start to go downhill pretty consistently as far as reviews go and uh, making money uh, back. And so, yeah, it's, I don't know, never seen it, can't weigh in on it. You haven't seen it? No. We haven't seen it. So, that was that. Then there's history of violence, and this is I want to spend a little bit of time on this. So can I can I can I say something about history of violence? Absolutely. So it is based on a comic book, right? That's actually pretty good. Okay. And they cut all of that out. It was okay. So there was um, a movie called Priest that was made, mm-hmm. and I think I gave did I I might have given you some of the original uh, Manwa, which is Korean oh, manga, yeah, 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 yeah. and they made a movie. And all they did was, like, slightly take the idea, but not really, and the name, and completely rewrote it. And that's essentially, what, for the most part, what they did with the history of violence. Why? Did he write it? No. No? Okay. So that's probably why. Yeah, so it... uh, And I read about this after the fact. So here's what I'll say. So the movie is about Viggo Mortensen, who is... It's just about Viggo Mortensen's life. Yeah. It's and a documentary on Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, and so Vigo Mortensen apparently lived this small town existence in like Iowa or Idaho or one of those I states. And then one day he's working at the diner he owns and these bad guys show up and then like when they try to rob the place, he breaks out in this rash of violence and like just brutally basically murders them and then the spotlight gets turned on him and then bad people start showing up looking looking for him and saying he's a different guy, but he's got a wife and he's got kids and uh, everybody's confused and shocked and and then eventually he has to go confront demons from the past. He's got some kind of history of violence. Yeah, and the comic from what I understand is like way more bloody. Yeah. And um, like way more involved as far as story and not as like cut and dry uh, early 2000s action movie as a history of violence is. Um, I'm also not like 
I'm like real hit or miss with Viggo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. There's some stuff I love that he's in, and there's some stuff I fucking hate that he's in. Yeah. So, but I guess you could really say that about any actor. Sure. Um, so, Mortensen himself has praised the movies as one of the best movies he's ever been in, if not the best. Boo. Yeah. Really? He, Lord of the, not Lord of the Rings? Uh, declaring it a perfect <laughs> film noir, or close to perfect. No, not Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, huh. it's, it's very interesting because uh, William Hurt, who plays a character later in the film was nominated for a best supporting actor role and the guy who adapted the screenplay from the comic book was nominated for an academy award for best adapted screenplay it kind of goes to show how out of touch the academy is because william hurt's fucking job like his role his character his dialogue his acting in this movie is some of the worst shit i've ever seen in my entire life it like even when I liked it upon my first viewing, that whole scene when Vigo and him are talking made me want to fucking kill myself. I was like, I'm about to have a history of violence with this knife in my goddamn <laughs> eyeballs because it was so awful. And it is completely baffling to me that anybody could think that, like, that was a performance worth praise. And the script is fucking terrible. It's like the script is one of the many aspects of the film that constantly hampers it from being well, remotely they, they, fucking they read interesting. They were the comic book and were essentially like, this is stupid, we're going to rewrite it. Yeah, but they did it in the way that, like, they take stupid comic book writing that, like, from my understanding, the comic book is, like, perfectly enjoyable as a piece of, like, late 90s edgy yeah. whatever uh, you know, like sort of Spawn McFarlane influenced, ultra violent, yeah. you know, Miller influenced shit. Um, and then they just like try to make it smarter, but it's still dumb. And and then they cut out all the super violence that makes it fun. So it's just like a stupid fucking movie. And in case you couldn't tell, I hate this movie now. Like it's just fucking. It's so dumb. The the. It's supposed to show, like, sort of how, like, violence can be so disruptive to a family and this, that, and the other. And the relationship he has with his son and his wife is so fucking stupid. Like, there's this... There's a good scene where he... She, like, they get in a fight and she goes to go up the stairs and he, like, rips her down the stairs. And then they furiously bang on the stairs. And famously, the chick, like, super banged up her back because they're these wooden stairs and all the rest. And, and like, okay, like, that's kind of cool as, like, a sort of sexy, like, you know... We do bad things to the people we love, and like we're still like, oh yeah, it's God. <laughs> but like, Viggo Mortensen's relationship with his son is, in my opinion, completely unbelievable. Like, it's it's one of those where it's like all it would take is like thirty seconds of dialogue to like explain the situation, and everybody would be good. But yeah. instead, it has to constantly be like we refuse to ever have a discussion. And then his son like gets all like super violent himself and like oh it's a reflection of his dad's violence and it's just like fucking bullshit like so stupid sense. it doesn't and the there's just not a single thing I like about it I think it's fucking stupid I think it's it's just not good what about Vigo Mortensen's chin do you like it his chin he's got a good chin yeah. I'll give you that and like you know when the dudes get murdered who show up and stuff it's kind I don't of know. i always thought the the violence was like pretty subpar in that movie well i think it's like effective in the sense of it's supposed to be so quick and explosive which like oftentimes violence really is like most things are over pretty quick most fights whatever yeah, whatever it's a movie yeah it you is know? yeah and it's like i know it's not a lot of payoff practically none so so that's that uh, some people think it's great. Those people are fucking idiots. Uh, if you disagree with us, fight me. 
or leave us a, if you disagree with us leave us a five star review on iTunes yeah. that'll really teach us yeah you write you can maybe write about how you're so smart and we're so dumb uh, and then they followed it up with an even dumber movie that <laughs> I really fucking a hate a future this movie. of violence no that would be better <laughs> Uh, no, Eastern Promises, which is from 2007, also stars Viggo Mortensen, Naomi Watts, Vincent Cassell, Sinead yeah. Cusick, and Armin Mueller-Stahl. It's supposed to be about um, a Russian-British midwife, Anna, who delivers the baby of a drug-addicted 14-year-old Russian prostitute who dies in childbirth. After Anna learns that the teen was lured into prostitution by the rough Russian mafia in London, the leader of the Russian gangsters threatens the baby's life to keep Anna from telling the police about their sex trafficking ring. As Anna tries to protect the baby, she is enmeshed deeper into the criminal underworld, and she is threatened by the Mafia's leader's son, Cassell, and warned off by the son's strong-arm man, Mortensen. Yikes. So, it was famous because there's this, like, whole scene where Viggo Mortensen's naked and, uh, a, like, fights a bunch of dudes in a bathhouse, and... Much like history of violence, like the actual violence there is is so so minimal for the slog that the rest of the movie is. <laughs> so made on a budget of fifty million, came back with fifty six, so like, you know, barely broke even. Um it got pretty mixed reviews. It it's like maybe it was shocking to people who have never watched an exploitation film in their life, but as somebody who is very adept at like watching hyperviolence and finding hyperviolence and enjoying hyper like I had seen each of the killer ten times by the time I saw this movie. Yeah, but even like even that man just like uh, action like he just doesn't do action very well like no. re, like actual he needs his gore needs to be slow uh, to a degree like it can't be quick paced and like you can do very like little blood and uh, very little like not show anything violence and it still be a very effective. Something that sticks out in mind is the scene with the Joker in the Dark Knight where he shoves the dude's eye into a pencil. Yeah. That's super effective and you don't see any blood. You don't even see the pencil go into his face. But, like, it's effective and it's visceral. Yeah, there's a movie called Haywire that I think it was Linklater directed, but it's got Gina something Hayward. or She's an MMA fighter. It was, like, her feature film, I think, debut. And um, Channing Tatum's in it and Ewan McGregor. She plays, like, a secret agent and basically there's a bunch of ton of like physical fights it's pg-13 so there's no blood but it's just like people beating the shit out of each other and it's like visceral and brutal and like it's basically an entire like just a bunch of sweet fight scenes um this movie is not that no. and i'm fine with neo-noir i love gangster films it's just like it doesn't succeed on any single level and the story is so fucking trite it's just like a series of like gangster film tropes that are totally stupid and the coolest thing is that like Viggo Mortensen has a bunch of, like, Russian mafia tattoos and stabs a bunch of dudes in the dick with an ice pick, which is, like, cool, but, like, <laughs> considering how at literally every other part of the movie fucking mm -hmm. sucks, and I like Naomi Watts. She's, like, not the best always, but she's fucking hot, and, like, I can sit through a lot for her. Totally does not absolve the sins of this film. It's just, it's just, like, everything was done, like, it feels like every single aspect of the movie was just like we're gonna try the least amount of hard like it, it was just a stupid fucking story with a stupid fucking ending and like just a bunch of stupid predictable bullshit like it was just ultra predictable and no amount of like single nude fight scenes can fix that i mean 
okay, if half the movie was nude fight scenes, it could have been actually pretty rad, but it wasn't, so it wasn't. The movie's 45 minutes of dick fights. Yeah, it, it was fucking stupid, and I fucking hate it. So, uh, followed that up with A Dangerous Method, which was Viggo Mortensen again, Kira Knightley, Michael Fassbender. I wanted to see this because it was about Carl Jung and Freud. Viggo Mortensen plays Freud. Uh, Carl Jung plays, um, or rather, Fassbender plays Carl Jung. Kira Knightley, I think, is, like, really hot, um... Not everybody agrees with that opinion, but I think she's good. I think, like, she's got some issue with shitting, so it seemed, like, pretty hot. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I never I never saw I've, it. I've never seen this. I'm looking at his list of movies now, and I can tell you, uh, pretty much after History of Violence, I've never seen another one of his movies. <laughs> so, um... It was made on a budget of fourteen million. It grossed twenty seven worldwide. It was it was like very dialogue heavy because it's a movie about psychologists and stuff. You know, not a shocker there. But I just was really worried about seeing it because again, like Cronenberg, often the writers for his movies are not so good. So I was like, this seems like it's gonna be not great. But I kind of want to see it just because again, Kira Knightley is hot and. I don't know if they talk about poop in it, but like both, both of <laughs> I them. I really hope they talk about poop. But like, in yeah, it. no, but well, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud were like all obsessed with like banging and penises and poops and and oral fixations and all those things. So I, I mean, I know that it's basically sex is a big part of it, and whether you see it or not, I don't know. God, I hope so. But yeah, I mean, I don't think Kira Knightley's the kind of chick because that gets nude. So, uh, just so you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. um, the guy who wrote the screenplay for History of Violence also worked on Masters of the Universe, the movie. So he's just got apparently a history of being involved in shitty things. Okay, just throwing Fair. that out there. So yeah, so I haven't seen that one, but it is supposed to be actually pretty decent, and that's that. Cosmopolis was the next one, 2012. I still like part of this movie and I couldn't do it. It wasn't even that James Pattinson was the lead in it, but it was just like... That didn't help you? It didn't help me, and it's basically like he goes to get a haircut. He's like a megastar, and he goes to get a haircut, and then like it just evolves into all this like craziness, which like can work. Um, it's kind of like... It reminds me of the plot of Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said by Philip K. Dick, except for it sucks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't even feel like... Uh, it was $20 million, made six. <laughs> it was $20 million. Yeah, I mean, so... And then he made Map to the Stars, which I haven't seen, but hilariously, Flex Lex's parents watched it, and her mom is like way more about movies that are like mm, more normal and have like positive outcomes and map to the Boo. stars yeah map to the stars was like Cronenberg's take on like Hollywood's terrible and corrupt and everybody involved in like LA and Hollywood are garbage which like isn't a revelation so I don't even know why one needs to make those movies anymore like you just make a movie and then you already know that because you watch these people be garbage um, but anyways they felt the need to make it some people said it was great. Like, I was reading some reviews, though. I'm not a big Julianne Moore fan. A lot of people, like, shit all over her performance. 
But uh, Mia Wasikowska, who's like apparently she's in um, Scarlet John, that uh, um, the Benicio no the uh, Guillermo Guillermo del Toro film Crimson, Crimson Peak. Peak yeah, she's in that and she's in some other stuff. She's supposed to be really good in it, like despite the fact that everybody else kind of sucks. But it's basically about a bunch of, like bad people in a bad Hollywood family being shitty to each other and it's like I could care less and that's the last movie he made 13 million gross four bit of a flop bit of a flop so what else you got for us Dick Fetty uh so I do want to talk about um Cronenberg's acting career and uh Cronenberg's a lot like uh Shinya Tsukamoto as far as Granted, Tsukamoto's been in a lot more, acted in a lot more films than Cronenberg has, but Cronenberg has um, acted in a fair amount. So he's in some of his own movies in basically like an extras capacity, but he's also in Nightbreed as Dr. Philip, Philip K. Decker. Um, and some of the other notable ones are To Die For, 1995, Blood and Donuts, also from 1995. He's in Jason X. Oh, man, he's in Jason X? Yeah. He's in Alias. He's in, uh, Rewind, Pig Goat Banana Cricket. <laughs> I could never get into Nightbreed. Throw that out there. Might have to rewatch it. Yeah, I don't, what is that about? Uh, it's, it's, it's Clive Barker. It's um kind of like Alice in Wonderland, but with monsters, sort of. Like okay. there's this see, there's this like hidden world where like monsters and shit come from, and I'd be willing to get another try. It's real campy. It's not like you you know you remember all the stuff like all the really campy stuff from like the first uh, Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. It's it's like almost all that. Okay. Yeah. So he he's done his fair share of acting. You know, again, mostly like small, small roles and things like that. But when I saw that he was Jason X, I just was like, "Well, wow, that's that's kind of fun." I amazing. almost bought a Jason X shirt the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it Japanese? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to go through some of these um, questions that were asked of Cronenberg as part of a Guardian article from September fourteenth, two thousand fourteen. Um. So, and before I guess I do this, I will say he. As I've said before, people who talk about David Cronenberg say, like, he's just a really nice guy. Um, he's not an asshole. Like, he was married to his second wife until she passed away. He had two kids with her. His kids aren't, like, drug-addicted lunatics or anything. Everybody's just pretty decent. He's basically an atheist, but he comes from this, you know, he's like like a non-religious Jew kind of a background, Jewish background. Um, and when he talks about his body horror films or his films that are termed that, like he doesn't see them as like that being the primary element. Like it's just part of an exploration of whatever theme and like the body horror just goes along with that. Yeah. But it's like, you know, the fly is partially just like an ode to like classic, those classic golden era films, but also like romantic and, you know, scanners is 
about a bunch of other stuff besides just people's heads exploding or... Is it, though? No, but, <laughs> uh, you know, Videodrome was an exploration of, like, man's uh, interaction with technology and the effect it has on us in, like, a very real way. And things like that. And he basically, he's like, you know, he talks about, like... the. The stuff that he makes is never scary to him. Like, he doesn't see it as being horrifying personally. Like, he doesn't suffer with visions of madness like Geiger does or, you know, did, rather. Or things like that. It was all just sort of explorations of, like, subconscious desires turned into physical manifestations that weren't necessarily, like, terrifying or bad or wrong. And, like, mutation in and of itself isn't something to, to fear and, and things like that. Um... So he's not, like, some grim dude. He's way less... And I think Lynch is like this, too, a fair amount. Although, you know, all these directors sort of change their opinions based on time and whatever yeah. from their movies, too, which is fair enough. Uh, although there can be some slight revisionist history. But, like, they're not dudes that are necessarily, like, super grim or super dark. Like, I think Lynch is a little bit more on that tip, but, like, he also is big into, like, meditation, and I think he's, what, vegan or some shit, probably? Probably. He's got great fucking hair. They actually both do. Look, yeah. at, look at old Cronenberg. Look at how handsome he is. Yeah. Uh, Lynch has still got it going on, though. Yeah. Lynch, Ooh, is, man. Lynch is a handsome guy. He's got that look. So. <sighs> Did he ever bang more turn? Who knows? Perhaps not. He <laughs> seems kind of like a nerd, you know? Yeah, but... Yeah. Damn. Anyway, no, go ahead. Go ahead. So, so yeah, there was this scene that was supposed to be in Crash, apparently, uh, involving lactation. And so, Rosanna Arquette, who was the actress in Crash, asked him why was that cut. Uh, and then he's explaining this, like, Rosanna Arquette asks the question, but then he kind of explains it in a way that's not directly answering it to her, per se. He says... Haha, ha. Rosanna was breastfeeding her baby when we shot Crash, and in one of the scenes she, where she's having sex in a car with James Spader, uh, she suddenly has this huge spurt of milk shot across the screen. It was pretty sensational, and we were all excited that it happened, but the thing in, is in the movie that the character is not pregnant and is not breastfeeding, so dramatically it made no sense. And though Crash is kind of a fever dream nightmare, it still had its own logic. So he cut it not because of the censorship or anything. Really, I thought it was a great moment. I loved it. And her breasts were very full in those scenes as a result, <laughs> which was rather nice. She certainly didn't need any implants. So. So he's a boob man. Yeah, he's a boob boy. Booby boy. Uh, so then um, Matthew Hill, who's a reader, says, How do you survive the horrors of your own imagination? What is or are your favorite alcoholic drink or other drugs? And... Basically, like I said, he says he doesn't see most of this stuff as horrible nightmare things. And, you know, he says, like, I think all of my movies are funny. Not everything in them is funny, but they're all full of humor. And second, it's not really my imagination. Anybody looking at the news on the Internet or in a newspaper, uh, there's horror there every day. Compared with that, my imagination is a wonderful playground. So I don't feel that my imagination is a place of horror at all. And as far as the drinking and stuff goes... Uh, he says he just doesn't like drinking. It never worked for him. It's not his kind of thing. He says, as far as other drugs goes, yes, in the 1960s, I had experience of various drugs, as everybody did, but I didn't really find anything that was congenial. I did one LSD trip. It was very potent, but there were disturbing aspects that I didn't enjoy. As an artist, one of the things I value most is clarity. You are constantly striving for incredible clarity, which maybe you never achieve, but I've found that drugs and alcohol derange that. So I'm boring. What can I say? Maybe he was on drugs when he made History of Violence, am I right? Yeah, maybe. 
but no. So somebody asked him what his dream cast would be like, and, and they talk about the fact that he works with some of his actors. Early on, he worked with a lot of like local Canadian actors for more like bit parts over and over and over again. And then later on, he had people like Robert Pattinson and Viggo Mortensen he used multiple times. Uh, and he says he'd love to get Viggo Mortensen and Rob Pattinson together, but doesn't really have a movie where he can see both of them. Uh, being it again and said he would love to work with Christopher Walken, James Woods or James Spader again wouldn't would love to do a movie with all of his leading men in it sort of like Fellini's eight and a half millimeter but just doesn't really see that happening another reader asks could you beat David Lynch in an arm wrestle to which Cronenberg responds that's interesting I've had Bob's big boy burgers with David Lynch when I was doing the dead zone <laughs> and he was doing Dune and we were both working for the Italian film producer Dino De Laurentiis that's when we got to know each other a little bit. I think I could take him, especially if he was meditating at the time. <laughs> it was pretty good. So essentially he stated that if Lynch was meditating, he'd jump him. Yeah. So David Cronenberg wrote his first book called Consumed in 2014. Basically came out right after he turned 70. And after doing Map to the Stars, he's essentially... I don't know if he's declared an official retirement since the interviews I read, which were all around the time that the book came out, but basically has cited that essentially the cinema, as he grew up in it, loved it, knew it, has largely died. People barely go to the movies anymore, which is true. I mean, we're seeing dwindling movie audiences for everything that's not Marvel-related. But basically said, like, in a world where we're increasingly focused on smaller and smaller screens rather than like communal experiences at the theater and etc he's less interested in making movies and frankly like doesn't care if he doesn't ever make another one and it's just sort of also has issues still to this day of fighting with getting financing a lot of Cronenberg's early films and I don't know if I mentioned this or not like for a long time he got financing from the government mm -hmm. which was part of why he had to fight censorship so much which we didn't even really touch on um but was essentially constantly fighting with people because he did all that body horror stuff and was like trying to get funding for making movies that were a lot of people just considered gross or whatever um but you know still to this day he's had a plenty of box office um his successes but has had a lot of box office bombs too and basically all of his movies after a dangerous game or method a dangerous method with uh the uh with mortensen and and um fassbender and kira knightley have all been making yeah. making no money so he's essentially i guess semi-retired now and you know isn't of that carpenter elk of fuck you pay me but but yeah so that kind of, I think, wraps it up, unless you've got more to add. No, that's it. Fly's a really good movie. Go watch The Fly. Yeah. Especially with the renaissance that's happening for Jeff Goldblum right now. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny, the so I talked a little bit about the Slanted Magazine, or Slant Magazine, or whatever it was, article. They listed Crash as his best film, which is... I feel like if you're a hipster, maybe you could make that argument, but it's kind of like Crash isn't really his best. Like Crash is awesome and it's really unique and, and sort of daring in the sense of like, it's a pretty fucking weird subject to make a movie about and make it so sexy and hot. But like Dead Ringers is a better movie. I don't know that The Fly is necessarily a better movie, but The Fly is like a way more watchable movie on a Tuesday night kind it's of a, a better thing. better movie. 
anyway, you can't really go wrong. Scanners, or I mean, rather, shivers to uh, to crash are just all good, except for that that one we haven't seen about the drag racers. But otherwise, it could be great. We don't even know. I don't think it is. Probably not. But it could be. Yeah, it could be. So yeah, I mean, there's so much music that is hugely influenced by Cronenberg in an aesthetics kind of way or directly samples. I mean, a lot of power electronics over the years have sampled Cronenberg films because they always have all sorts of like good shit, especially Videodrome. Videodrome's like hugely sampled. It's like every other line of dialogue you could sample. Uh, fun fact uh, for all you uh, weebs and secret X scene kids out there, Jonah Vasquez, a lot of his inspiration for both Invader Zim, John and the Homicidal Maniac, and Squee were drew, uh, were for were drawn from Cronenberg. Oh, did yeah, not that know was that. one of his main influences. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, him and Geiger. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, and what was I going to say? Uh, we were listening to High Functioning Flesh right before the episode, which is like a band that, like, their whole thing is body horror as music and has an extremely 1980s aesthetic. Ah! 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 Yeah. Um, rigid and, no, not Rigid Embrace, uh, something memory, uh, flash memory from their first album starts with a sample from Shivers, and it's hard to, like, hear it unless you've seen the movie. Yeah, it sounds like it's coming through a, uh, New York subway, uh, loudspeaker. loudspeaker yeah. that's also, like, submerged in water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's my stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean... His movies are awesome. They're huge. You know, they've influenced a lot of directors since. A lot of like, especially stuff like we've talked about the Void a lot of times on this show. That's like huge Carpenter, Cronenberg influences. Basically, anytime now where there's body horror, like he's a big part of that. I, you know, I think Geiger, visually and Cronenberg are like those main guys, and then Carpenter to a lesser extent. But everything from like the aesthetics of Doom Three. Uh, or the original Dooms for that matter, but especially like Doom 3, um, Doom 4, and all this kind of stuff that are indebted, and then, you know, tons of good music. A lot of anything that's like throwback to 80s anime. weirdness. Yeah, tons of anime. You know, all that biomechanical, sex-oriented fuck stuff. Ser- uh, Lane, Serial Experiments Lane, yeah. is like hugely video drum influenced and, you know... A lot of that Aero stuff, you can say there's some Cronenberg influence. Although there's a lot of other like non-Western influences, obviously, that go into that whole history of Aero But yeah. Um, that's our episode. That's it. So I hope you guys enjoyed. If you haven't seen some of these movies, I hope that they've inspired, you know, we've inspired you to check them out. If we miss anything, keep it to yourself. No, no, let us know. If you want to fight with us about our opinions and why you're wrong, then you can call us. Let us know. You can you can call us at motelhealthpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, exactly. But otherwise, please rate and review and or and like us on Flaskbook. Check us out on the gram. We occasionally will post dick pics. And, uh... Otherwise, later, nerds. Later, nerds.